Good morning. I'm glad to see you all here this morning. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our series on one of the most beloved books of the Bible, Leviticus. So if you're asking yourself when we started this series, the answer would be that I preached the intro to the series on January 1st. So considering that that was quite a while ago, I'm going to offer a brief recap before we read a part of our passage today. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible and is set right after the building of the tabernacle in Exodus. And as you might remember, there was a slight issue that arose after the, the Lord's glory filled the tabernacle. Moses, nor any other Israelite, could enter the tabernacle to be, be in the presence of the Lord. And the requirement for coming before the Lord is laid out in Psalm 24, 3 and 4, which says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. And unfortunately, there was not a single person in the Israelite community who could fit that description. And Leviticus is Yahweh's answer to that problem, as it is God's revealed way to deal with sin, impurity, and guilt. This week we're going to take a look at the foundation of the solution that God offers, and that is the sacrificial system. I have titled this sermon, This is the Way, as a nod to the phrase used in the Mandalorian. And I think it fits well as a shortcut to our main point today. When dealing with sin and guilt, substitutionary sacrifice is the way to God. This is the way. We're going to be in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 today. And since this is such a long passage, I'm only going to read chapter 1. And with it, you're going to get a general idea of the form and structure of the various sacrifices. However, that I will ask that you keep your Bible open throughout um, as we're going to see different nuances and things that are present that are not in others in the various five sacrifices that we will encounter. With that, hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces, with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the intros and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring the offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. 
He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You've breathed out the whole of, script- of, the, whole of the scriptures and you have promised to encounter us through them as they are read and preached. I ask that you would enable us to focus on your word this morning, and that we would know you and love you more as we meet you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So for you students out there, this sermon will be structured into two courses. The Way 101 will cover the nature of sacrifices in general, and will give us an idea of the basic meaning of significant components, thus preparing us to understand the significant differences between the sacrifices. The Way 201 will delve briefly into each sacrifice covered in Leviticus 1 through 7, and will explore the unique contribution that each one makes to the Israelite religion. Then, we will conclude by seeking to understand how Jesus fulfills these sacrifices and what it would look like for us to respond faithfully. I will ask you to bear with me as we work through our two courses. There are a lot of seemingly irrelevant details and nuances that we will need to address. And as a book of laws and regulations, Leviticus is not always the most engaging read. But I hope to show you that there is a rich reward as we encounter the Lord's words in Leviticus. Let's begin our first course, covering sacrifices in general. Sacrifices are a common element in many religions. It takes little time searching to find that throughout almost all of time and throughout nearly, if not every, people group, their religion has some concept of sacrifices, whether that be animal sacrifices, food sacrifices, or tragically, human sacrifices. Typically, the goal of these sacrifices is to appease the gods and call, them, call on them to fix a problem, provide one with something, or to call down blessing. Even today, when we tend to think of sacrifices, we tend to think of giving something up so that we can get something else, usually a sort of quid pro quo kind of idea. This is not the case for the Israelites. They're not buying off God so that he won't smite them. Rather, these are revealed means of drawing near to God. It should be reflective of the heart posture of the Israelite. So there are three specific aspects of sacrifices that we will cover here in the Way 101. Sacrifices are costly, bloody, and substitutionary. I'll repeat that. Sacrifices are costly, bloody, and substitutionary. So first, we're going to cover the costly nature of sacrifices. Sacrifices aren't meant to be costly. Otherwise, they really wouldn't be sacrifices. And repeatedly throughout Leviticus 1-7, through we see that the animals to be sacrificed are required to be without blemish, or for the grain offering, that of fine flour. Animal sacrifices would have been extremely costly at the time. The Israelites were about to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, so they did not, and they did not have modern vet medicine to deal with disease, lameness, etc. And then to be asked to kill an animal, let alone one that is out blemish, would mean that it would be your best animal, would make this even more costly. Not only are you out of the product that comes from the animal, but the genetics that would lead to more premium animals. To put that in today's terms is a little bit difficult, as many of us don't depend wholly on livestock for our livelihoods. And the sacrifice of multiple offerings would have been a bull, and today a good bull is worth roughly five to $10,000, according to Google. 
Yet to limit the value of the sacrifice to five to ten thousand dollars is likely a little too small of a number um, in terms of for the Israelites. But it was not only the sacrifice that was costly, but the fact that the meat was either burned or given to the Levites as food means that you don't recover so much as a steak. The burning of the sacrifice is actually a really interesting thing. Is it, it would be akin to just lighting a pile of thousands of dollars on fire. And it tells us something important about sacrifices. Because it reveals that there should be no ability to recover anything whatsoever that you have sacrificed. You can't hold on to the sacrifice and offer it at the same time. You either give it or you don't. So sacrifices are costly. And this is fitting because they're being offered to God, who is worthy of all worship. But sacrifices are also bloody. And with the exception of the grain offering, all of these sacrifices involve the slaughtering of an animal. And often, the person who brought the sacrifice would be the one to slit the animal's throat. This is actually on purpose. And in our modern society, most of us aren't exposed to blood and guts on a regular basis. Maybe we'll scrape our knee or cut ourselves with a kitchen knife. Um, but there are some people who hunt or work in medical fields and who are exposed, exposed more often to blood and guts and so on. And I know that speaking of slaughtering animals and blood and guts may be off-putting to some, and I do want to acknowledge that. Um, but the scriptures do include this for a reason, and I think it is strikingly profound. So this, this past Thanksgiving, I went deer hunting for the first time. And in the process of cutting, gutting and processing my deer, I was struck with the reality that this animal literally just died so that I could eat it. And this process of cleaning it and processing it is not clean. Like, the deer doesn't cut itself up and grind itself up after you shoot it. Like, you have to do that yourself. And it's a process where it is inevitable that you will be covered in blood. So if you were an Israelite offering a sacrifice, while you might show up with clean clothes, you'd be leaving with blood on your hands, on your clothes, and there would be blood all over the temple grounds. And the thought that should be running through your mind at that point is this. This blood that I just spilt should have been mine. It was I who sinned, who rebelled, and was de deserving of death. Yet Yahweh has allowed this animal to take my place. That should have been me. Thus, the bloodiness of the sacrifice should hammer home the reality that our sin is deserving of death. That we have no hope of approaching God without the spilling of costless, costly blameless blood. So how exactly does that work? That brings us to the third element of a sacrifice. It is substitutionary. Sacrifices, as pointed out in the, with respect to the bloodiness of the sacrifice, are killed, given, burnt, etc. in the place of the offer. This is particularly true of those sacrifices that involved animals, but it is also true of the grain offerings. And in these chapters of Leviticus, we see two ways in which sacrifices do something on our behalf. The first is that animals take on the sin and guilt of the offerer. And this occurs through the hand-leaning ceremony that occurs in Leviticus 1.4, which says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And this happens in almost all of the other sacrifices that involve the slaughtering of an animal. In this ceremony, the sin and guilt of the offerer is transferred to the animal, who then pays with its blood. And blood, for the Israelites, was understood as the source of life. In Genesis 9-4, God tells Noah that you should not eat flesh with its life. That is blood. 
And later in Leviticus, God's tell, God tells the Israelites in Leviticus 17.11, for, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to, for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So this hand-leaning ceremony is an imputation or a transfer of the Israelites' life and the judgment that is deserved for the unblemished, innocent life of the animal. And because the party with the guilt transferred to it is slaughtered, the other, namely the Israelite, is able then to live before God as if they were unblemished and innocent. The other substitutionary aspect in the idea of sacrifice comes with the usage of the phrase pleasing aroma throughout chapters 1 through 3. This is specifically in connection with the burnt grain and peace offerings that are all voluntary. The phrasing usually goes with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The idea here is that as a sacrifice is burnt and it turns into smoke, it visually ascends into the sky. So it comes to symbolize that the sacrifice is coming before the presence of the Lord is something that is pleasing to him. L. Michael Morales helpfully explains this element, saying, In the burning rite, the offering is not destroyed but transformed, sublimated, etherealized, so that it can ascend in smoke to the heaven above, the dwelling place of God. Through this ritual of transformation, the ascending smoke becomes a visible presentation of humanity's return to God. In short, when the offering is burnt, the offerer is vicariously ascending into the presence of God. And the significance of this is that the Israelites are then assured that they do indeed have access to their holy, righteous God. So now we've covered the basics of sacrifices. They are costly, bloody, and substitutionary. This is the way. Now we will dive into the way 201, taking a look at each sacrifice. We will approach them in the order that they are presented in Leviticus. So the first offering we see in the passage that we read earlier was the, the, off, the burnt offering. And in many ways, it will follow very closely the basic outline structure of the sacrifice that we just covered. An unblemished animal is brought, slaughtered, its blood is thrown against the sides of the altar, it's cut up, cleaned, and then burnt completely. While the offerer does a lot of this, it is the priest who will throw the, blood on, throw the blood on the altar and burn the animal, as they are needed as mediators. Another interesting thing about this offering is that there are provisions for different types of animals that can be used, meaning that this particular sacrifice would have been more accessible to the poor in Israel. And this brings out an important point, that the goal of this offering was not to make a show of offering an expensive animal, but to reveal an inward posture in reality. This, along with the grain and peace offering, are voluntary, so they are a free response to God. And the significance of this offering is that it reveals a wholehearted consecration of the individual to God. And this particularly comes out in the fact that the entire sacrifice is burnt. Thus, in offering this burnt offering, the Israelite is recognizing that their life is not their own, but God's. And this drives them towards godliness. Why? Because when we are committed to or devoted to something, we will work tirelessly to bring about that dream or desire. And we find that we are not as devoted to God as we are called to be, but we are often devoted to things that are not God. This can be any number of things, whether it's your career, your family, or excellence in a hobby, sport, or school. These things are things we make sacrifices for these things, whether that be our time, our money, or our freedom. We are all too familiar with the story of a parent too obsessed with their career to be present with their children. Or the student who spends all of their time chasing that 4.0 so that they don't actually develop meaningful relationships in college. 
then while we should be dedicated to the various callings that we've been called to by God, we also must seek to have them rightly ordered. And that is what this sacrifice does. The burnt offering calls for a costly sacrifice, one that dies in your place and is offered to God in your place. And to offer this sacrifice is in effect to say, Lord, this is my life, poured out before you, offered completely unto you. Take it and do with it what you will. I'm willing to go where you call, to obey your commands, and find my joy in all in you, no matter the cost. Now we'll move on to the grain offering in chapter 2. The grain offering in many ways is the anomaly out of these five offerings. It's the only one where blood is not spilt. Um, and due to time restraints, I will not spend a ton of time diving into all of the various details, but I will hit the highlights. Here are some significant things that we see in the grain offering. It is of fine flour, either straight up as flour in some baked or cooked form. It must include oil and be without leaven or honey. Frankincense is included, and it must have the salt of the covenant in it, which is meant to symbolize covenant faithfulness. And only a portion of this offering is burnt, as the rest is meant to feed the priesthood. And it is also mentioned as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you will notice if you look at chapter 2, there are two grain offerings shown. The first is the, just titled the grain offering. And then you get to the end of chapter 2, there is the first fruits offering, which we will encounter again later in Leviticus. And the primary meaning of this offering is that the Israelite is to off, also offer up the fruit of their label, labor to the Lord. It's not only their life, but their labor that is the Lord's. And we see here how we can hold together dedication to your various callings and wholehearted worship. The grain offering shows that the aim of all of our labor is to glorify God, offering it to him as a part of our whole life faithfulness. Just like an author might dedicate their book to someone that is important to them, so we are to dedicate our labor and its fruits to the Lord. Next we encounter the peace offering in Leviticus 3. And it is the last of the voluntary offerings and is typically offered for one of three reasons. And while it is described in chapter 3, we do find farther instructions in chapter 7. And this is where these different occasions come up. So the first purpose that it is offered is thanksgiving. We see this mentioned in Leviticus 7.12. If he offers it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour mixed with oil. This was thanksgiving for God's faithfulness and love. The second reason was to confirm a vow. And we see this in Leviticus 7.16. But if the sacrifice of his burnt offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he honors his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. So this, offer, this vow offering was served to confirm one's word when, give, when making a vow unto the Lord. And third, it, as we saw it mentioned in 7.16, there's also a free will aspect. as is, It's lab, labeled the free will offering, which points to just a, an expression of one's love for God. And we see that the peace offering is burnt on top of the burnt offering, meaning that it comes after, which is significant, as you will see in a moment. And what makes this one unique is that only the fat and other parts of the animal that would have had a lot of fat connected to them are offered to the Lord. The rest are either given to the priest as food or eaten by the Israelites and others that are present. And this is significant because it really gets to the heart of the peace offering since it comes after the burnt offering and the sa sacrifices that include atonement, we'll see that the goal of atonement is lived out as Israel comes together to enjoy a meal together in the presence of the Lord. And while this aspect is not mentioned in chapter 3, we do find the instructions for the meal to follow in Leviticus 7, 11 through 36. 
They eat the sacrifices within one day in some cases and before the third day in others. Considering that this was an entire cow, lamb, or goat, there's no way that they were eating this animal on their own. So they, and all who were clean, would be able to eat this animal. There was to be no discrimination in inviting to this covenant meal. The only requirement was that they had to be ceremonially clean. And thus, this meal is a foretaste, looking forward to the goal of the covenant, and that which is peace and communion with God and God's people. And this only comes after atonement is made. And the peace offering is the promise that this communion is real and is present to some extent, yet is clearly awaiting a future, fuller fulfillment. And if there's one thing that I want you to remember about the peace offering, it is this. The peace offering calls us to fellowship with God and others as a result of the way of atonement that he has made. So we're going to move on now to the two mandatory offerings. The sin offering is first, and then we'll cover the guilt offering. The sin offering is in chapter 4, and it is listed as being offered for unintentional sins, which are committed in ignorance of the law or ignorance of having broken the law. And the Bible distinguishes this from sins done with a high hand, which are directly meant to just complete rebellion against God, whether that be blasphemy or just total willful rebellion. And there are many ways where this idea of of being guilty and needing atonement for unintentional sins runs counter to our cultural ideas. Typically, when we've sinned or done wrong, we very quickly turn to the excuse of, oh, I I didn't mean to, or, oh, I, I didn't know. And these are not excuses that work for God. You either obeyed or you didn't. And if you sinned, even unknowingly, you are deserving of death, and thus you need to sacrifice. And this sin offering is that sacrifice. Built into this offering is the idea of confession and repentance. This sacrifice would be a public thing, not something that you could go do at home. Oh, darn, sinned again. I'm going to go out back and slaughter an animal. No, you had to go to the temple, bring an animal, and do so. And that everyone would see that, oh, they're offering a sin offering. They sinned. And they are seeing that you are then repenting and coming to the Lord to deal with it. And one thing that you might notice in chapter 4 is that there are different offerings required for different people. For example, the high priest must must sacrifice a bull, and just a leader amongst the people must offer a goat. The general principle here is that the higher the position, the larger the need for forgiveness, as the impact of said sin is larger. This may again be counterintuitive to our culture, as we like to think that we have equal power and thus equal consequences. But that is frankly not the case. Those who have more authority and power have more responsibility to steward that authority and power well. And within a church setting, this is why there are higher biblical standards for those who seek to be elders, since they are taking on the responsibility of shepherding the flock of God. This sin offering also has a provision for cheaper sacrifices in line with what one is able to afford, meaning that God wants forgiveness and repentance to be present amongst even the least of the people. And this is basic for life sacrifice, a basic life for life sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. What is needed to receive forgiveness is to realize and confess your sin and then offer the appropriate sacrifice. Now we will move on to the guilt offering. The guilt offering is offered for actual or felt guilt. And guilt is the result of having betrayed covenant loyalty and thus needs a reparation, a paying back. In Leviticus 6, 1 through 5, there are a number of examples of things where the guilt offering would be appropriate. All of them involve wronging their neighbor and thus defaming God's name. Here are those examples. 
The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. In each of these cases, one's relationship with their neighbor has been damaged and thus is in need of repair. The reparations in such a case were the full thing plus 20%. And this is to be done as soon as one realizes that they are guilty of their sin. Zacchaeus would be a prime example of this response. And in relation to God, there is a need for sacrifice and forgiveness. Because the way that God's people treat one another reflects on God. So by defrauding your neighbor, you have defamed God's name. Which raises a need for reparation to God. Which comes in the form of an offering. So, between the guilt and sin offerings, God has provided a means of purifying and forgiving the people that is going to continue to need atonement because of their sin. And with that, we have covered all five sacrifices instituted in Leviticus 1-7. through and These five cover a lot of different aspects about what it, of what it means to be able to approach God. The sin and guilt offerings bring about atonement and forgiveness, removing the sin and impurity that prevent people from coming before the presence of God. The burnt offering communicates both atonement and that the offerer is wholly consecrating themselves to God. The grain offering commits that one, communicates that one's labor and the fruit of that labor is given to God. And the peace offering offers a foretaste of the goal of the covenant, which is fellowship and peace with God and neighbor. Yet, we don't perform these sacrifices today. Why is that? The answer is that this entire system was never meant to be sufficient. After all, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 10, 1 through 4, that for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, what are we to do? To who are we to turn? We turn to Jesus, who through doing the will of God sanctifies us through the offering of his body once for all. How? Look to Hebrews 10 again. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies could be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Christ being the very Son of God, has agreed to be our substitute. It is He, who when we lean our hand on Him by faith, who sheds His blood, trading His perfect, wholly consecrated life of communion with the Trinity for our sinful, rebellious existence. He then ascends to heaven as our blameless, holy advocate and invites us to boldly approach the presence of God, knowing that He has borne our sin. And how are we to respond to this good news? Our response is to be that of Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We also can look at Hebrews 13.15-16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do not think that the way to come before God is to offer up an adequate sacrifice on your own. That would forget that we need the sin and guilt offerings, that atonement needs to be made, that you are unable to keep yourself from sin apart from Christ. And this order is essential here. You must lean your hand on Jesus, handing over your sin, guilt, and rebellion to him, and knowing that he has shed his blood, and in so doing, credited his perfect, unblemished life to you, and invited you into God's presence for fellowship, then, and only then, once all of the work is done by Christ, you can offer your life up in response. And here, we are confronted. Are we really living our lives as a living sacrifice? Is everything that you do oriented towards cultivating peace and communion with God? Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 14-19, calls those who have accepted the sacrifice of Christ to live holy lives as a fitting response to the blood of Jesus shed for them. Saying, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you, shall, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christian, Christ himself, the very Son of God, was slaughtered as an innocent lamb to take away your sins. Your life has been purchased by God. You have been spared the penalty of your sin and have been gifted a new life. And you are called to lay it down, to offer it up to God so that he may be glorified to it, through it. This is the way. Let's pray. Triune God, you have made a way for man to dwell with you. Father, you have planned our redemption from eternity. O Son, you have become man and spilt your blood on our behalf as our great high priest and mediator. O Holy Spirit, you apply the blood of Christ to us, giving us new life and making us holy. I pray that we would remember the precious blood of Christ that was spilt and offer ourselves completely unto you, O Lord. Amen.